Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us this week is Ben Suppet, founder and CEO of Unify Money. And welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, um, I've noticed that you and I actually shared some interesting, similar past experiences with than the telecom industry. Um, there are actually quite a few of us that came from telecom or at least spent some time um, in that space. Talk us through a little bit um, this earlier part of your career, your time in Southeast Asia. It's always interesting to hear. And how did you end up in financial services? Um, absolutely. So it actually started prior to that when I was working in London. Um, so I was originally working at Accenture in the communications and high tech practice. Uh, working a lot with telecoms companies, uh, ended up working at Nokia and then uh, the GSM Association. And it was really at the GSM Association that I started getting involved in in what was called mobile money or, or, or mobile banking, now fintech. Um, and there, there was a project that I led, which was instigated by a large number of emerging market network operators who who wanted to be able to use their their um, phones to to help their customers access international remittances in particular, uh, and this is going back pre M-Pesa, um, you know when when really the only um, mobile banking um, services in the market were were in the Philippines uh, with Smart and uh, the other one whose name I can't remember anymore, um, and so I was asked to run a project looking at how can we help get money from uh, developed economies to emerging economies using just the mobile phone, and ended up working with Wells, uh, with uh, sorry Western Union, and also Mastercard, and that was really my introduction to financial services. I then moved to Indonesia uh, to help launch a mobile network operator in Indonesia. Continued working uh, in in mobile money, uh, did a pilot there with Bank Mandiri and the IFC. Um, working with um, various players, how we could use mobile um, mobile phones to to facilitate banking services, financial services, and ended up actually creating, uh, leaving the the company I was working for with my team to create a mobile bank, uh, and we got acquired almost immediately by one of our uh, one of our customers, uh, B, BN, uh, BNPT, and. We helped them launch what is now Indonesia's largest mobile bank, uh, BTPN Wow. Um, and then again, historical connection. Um, someone I was working with at Western Union had subsequently joined Visa, and uh, they invited me to come and run the innovation team across uh, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand. So that's that's how I ended up um, in Singapore after four years in Indonesia, four years in Singapore. Um, my team really led the the relaunch, re-relaunch of contactless payments in the region. Um, I think uh, Visa had tried two or three times previously to launch it, and it had never worked. Um, and uh, the time had finally come, and we were able to relaunch both um, contactless payments and also Visa Direct in the region. And I then moved with Visa to San Francisco to help lead a project looking at Blue Sky Innovation around digital consumers and credit. And there was a recognition that credit cards really hadn't evolved uh, very much in 30 years. And uh, digital consumers were seeing credit cards as increasingly commoditized. Um, that's not necessarily good for the market, not good for Visa, um, the, the so-called race to the bottom. Um, so I, I led that project and then and then left Visa 
to work at Fitbit uh, to help roll out Fitbit Pay, which was enormous fun. Um, and it was it was pretty hard coming at the end of the energy around the Apple Pay launch. We came in four years after that and nobody was interested in contactless payments. You know, it'd been an absolute disaster, um, particularly in the US for very good reasons. And um, we had a real uphill battle to launch Fitbit Pay, but we launched it successfully by talking to banks about financial fitness and how Fitbit, Fitbit Pay and the bank's products could combine to create something far more engaging um, for than either health or fitness and financial services alone. Um, and then breached into Samsung Pay and, and decided that the time had come to, to go back into the you know, to, to sort of direct my own destiny. And in the in the four years or so I'd been in the US, I'd, I'd seen you know, high volumes of, of fintechs, consumer-focused fintech launching, um, but many of them seem to be focused on the same consumers, the, the, the sort of subprime consumers. And I felt that there was a real opportunity to really attack the, the top 10 banks um, and serve their most strategic customers affluent millennials, um, you know, young professionals to serve them with a with a much more compelling solution than than the big brand banks were offering. Um, and that that became Unify Money. So let's talk about that. It's obvious that, you know, with your background in, in working in telecom and different sort of places of financial services and Fitbit Pay, which I do remember when it launched. Um, if, if maybe if it, it launched during the pandemic, it would have been a different story. I don't know. I think a lot of interesting sort of things have come out of that. Um, so the inspiration, obviously, was your experience uh, and what you saw like sort of missing in the market. So let's let's talk about Unify Money and what you launched with some of the services, uh, including you you added a, a Premier Credit Card, Unify Premier Credit Card next month. Okay, so you're launching then. Talk about the demographics. Talk about what you've learned since you launched. Um, yeah, so the, the demographics is is really young professionals. So the you know the core is going to be twenty five to thirty four year olds, um, young doctors, young lawyers, people working in finance and tech, uh, people who spend a disproportionate amount of their lives in higher education, um, pursuing their careers, getting well paid, but carrying a huge amount of student debt, living in some of the most expensive cities in the U.S. and 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 often with very very limited tools and and background and awareness in 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 managing money. Um, and they're coming into the workforce. If you look at a young doctor, they go age 29 earning $60,000 to age 30 earning a quarter of a million um, at the busiest time probably in their lives. You know, their career's just taken a huge, huge step up. You, you, you don't get any bigger, um, any, any bigger sort of stakes than people's health, uh, which they're in charge of suddenly. Um, and you know, statistically, late 20s, early 30s, it's when you get married, have kids, buy a house, move to the suburbs, there's all these massive decisions within five or so years from a career and personal perspective, there's an awful lot going on. And the decisions they make at that point can affect them in 30 years time. And a surprisingly high proportion of young doctors, for example, retire after 30, 40 years of service, and they are not rich, despite the fact it's the most highly paid job in the US today. Um, and it's because they they 
it's not necessarily bad decisions that they make, it's the decisions they don't make. And this affects all mass affluent consumers. It's generally the decisions we don't make that hurt us. It's not making bad decisions around money. And the three top sins are keeping too much uh, money in a deposit account, typically with a big brand bank, earning next to no interest, having a credit card that's there for affluent signaling or peacocking, as opposed to a, um, you know, a, a high performing or, or, or a you know, financial instrument, and, and thirdly, not dollar cost averaging. And all these things on any one day, one week, one month, even one year are pretty small, particularly if you're earning $250,000 a year, you don't notice them. But over 30, 35 years, the opportunity cost is massive. And that's, that's what we wanted to solve for. We wanted to solve for um, a, a, a holistic and complex problem with money that mass affluent consumers have, and it demanded a complex solution. Um, most fintechs that that I am aware of are focusing on very discrete elements of the overall financial ecosystem. They're either solving for access or solving for features and functionality that don't exist. Very, very few are actually seeking to holistically solve for mass affluent consumers' problems with money. Um, we've, you know, the world has tried awareness building, tried education, tried notifications. PFM failed. Um, you know, notifications become nagging very, very quickly. Um, it's very similar to health as well. You know, it's not a lack of intelligence, awareness, or, or understanding. We all know we shouldn't drink and shouldn't smoke and we should exercise more, um, but, but generally we don't. Um, and the same is true of money. Um, it's just the, the, the massive inertia um, around managing your money properly and the fact it's not burning a hole in your pocket. A dollar earned feels radically different to a dollar saved, even though a dollar saved is actually more valuable. Um, so we'll do anything to earn a dollar. Um, but most of us won't even change bank or swap our credit card out to, to, to save a dollar. And our response to that was one platform where you can manage all of your money. More importantly, by having everything on one platform, we can manage the manual, the manual parts of it, the bits you're not interested in. Uh, we can solve for those using technology and automation, whilst at the same time uh, solving for access to what people are interested in, whether it's uh, actively buying individual stocks, uh, alternative assets, crypto, precious metals, and, and longer term, other alternative assets that we'd love to include, whether it's fractional farmland, wine, collectibles, etc. Well, and, and that's one of the things I was going to follow up with was, you know, what, what does the rest of it look like? Because when we first met and it was napkin stage, it was, you know, Henry's, but, you know, not yet rich, but it seems like a lot of the people that you're going to be catering to or are catering to have a decent amount of money. And and when I compare it to some of the conversations we've had with, with founders or founding teams in the last couple of years, they all seem to be going after the entire relationship. And yet banks are almost seeding the entire relationship in pieces. So when you think about, you know, the, the landscape of your customers and their, their needs, you know, do you look at it like um, we had Wealthfront on in the past uh, few months they are sort of automating the the feed of monies in almost like a sweep account, you know, between daily savings and spending and long term wealth building. Do you look at it differently? I, I think I think so. I you know, if I look at the robo advisors, um, unfortunately, you've had these industries. You, you you've had the the active trading apps and the robo advisors really emerging completely independently of each other. And and if you were looking at them, and and they market to their strengths, they market to what they are. Um, you know, robo advisors want to want to promote robo advising, and active trading apps want to promote active trading. These are not competitive 
philosophies. They're complementary. Everybody should be dollar cost averaging and, and robo and automation and, and is the best way to ensure that your psychology doesn't stop you doing that or your inertia. It's like having a New Year's resolution. We're all completely committed January the 1st, January the 30th, we've forgotten it. So how do you ensure that that commitment to your long-term um, you know, wealth creation is, is followed through used technology. But active trading is just as important and there's a role for it. And it plays an incredibly important role in getting people engaged in their wealth management journey, which you should be to a greater or lesser extent, not every day, not every month even, but you should be aware of it. And what better way to do that by than by talking about investment grade products that people are genuinely interested in, whether it's wine, art, sports, etc. Um, so that's how we see it. We see it much, much more holistically and um, we we want to solve systematically for the for the for the ecosystem problem. It's a complicated problem. It's not just about features and functionality. It's largely about psychology. Um, so we we need to solve for that holistically, and it it, it demands a complex solution, not individual um, apps for individual elements of the financial services uh, um, market. And the problem with fintech in that we've we've seen a plethora of fantastic services that solve for very, very niche aspects or elements of the overall ecosystem. But they're actually making it harder to manage money, not easier, because your average millennial now has 10 or 15 separate apps on their phone. And who, who has to synthesize that? Who has to do the work? It's the customers. The consumer has to do the work. And we know consumers don't like doing that. So it's great that that one app is doing something that's so fantastic that you weren't doing it before, but you probably are committing all three of the sins of omission. These are the things that really hurt you. You've got way too much money sitting in a top 10 bank earning no interest. You've got a credit card that you bought for affluent signaling reasons, not because it returns the, the best return on your spend. Um, and you, you, you probably aren't dollar cost averaging or not doing it very effectively. Um, so that, yeah, I think I think we are thinking of it differently and we're definitely approaching it in a more holistic, um, systematic way, which I believe it, it demands. I'm, I'm taking notes, Ben, and I think I might have committed a few of those since that you just talked about. Mm -hmm. um, we all do, 100%. We all do. <laughs> Right. And, and that's, that's, so we calculated that if the entire millennial generation sold for the three sins of omission in personal finance and did so throughout the entirety of their working life, $20 trillion would be created of value flowing directly to those consumers. It is a phenomenal amount of money that is being lost. Opportunity cost. But for any of us on an individual yeah. day, weekly or month, it's it's a few dollars. And, like, you know, it's uh, Starbucks. <laughs> But it adds up. Drinking that. It does add up, um, although I'm not a millennial anymore. But anyway, I digress. Um, one of the, one of the things that I remember when I was looking at, uh, uh, Unify Mini, um, the website, something caught my eye. There was something on there that you guys specifically said and alluded to. Um, you have a global team. You had a, you had a team that spoke multiple languages. That, that part caught my eye. That was interesting. Yeah, nine languages at the last, uh, yeah. Right. That's not something that people typically talk about or stress or even highlight. Um, how, how I'm very curious to know, how did that happen? How has, you know, everyone's collective experiences, right? Um, with different cultures, with, with different way of living and, and seeing how product growth, how has that influenced your product decisions? 
Um, it, it, it happened entirely accidentally. It was it was serendipity. There was there was no plan, no no sort of grand scheme to have um, you know a diverse team in some dimensions. You know we are not adequately diverse in others. Um, I, I would be the first to admit, but it, you know we're a group of people who found each other on the on the journey, um, and and all agreed with the mission and the approach. Um, uh, and I think it's I, I, I can talk to my personal sort of journey arriving in the U.S., thinking I was coming to the, the most innovative fintech market in the world. You know, that's that's why I decided to come to San Francisco because at that point in Southeast Asia, um, fintech was still nascent. Um, there was very little happening. I mean, that's changed very rapidly. And I wanted to pursue my career in Silicon Valley and working with hot fintechs like Stripe and Square and those guys, PayPal. Um, it was all coming out of Silicon Valley. Um, and I was shocked when people I found people still using checkbooks in grocery stores. It was just laughable. And and uh, it, it would take days, if not weeks, to move money between accounts. And it was just so bad. The infrastructure was just so awful. Um, nobody had uh, looked at um, contactless cards. Um, I had one and I was using my Singaporean PayWave card and the few places I could tap to pay and people treated it like magic. It was extraordinary. Um, so you had this weird environment where the online world was incredibly sophisticated, but the many aspects of the offline world, particularly banking infrastructure and the money movement and the in-store payments, it was 20 years behind the rest of the world. Um, and I, I think it was helpful. Um, it was certainly helpful at my time at Fitbit and Samsung. One of the reasons I think that the the digital wallets, you know, the Apple, Samsungs, the Googles have failed in largely uh, from an in-store perspective is that the people making those products were based in Silicon Valley and there was no culture of tap to pay in Silicon Valley. If you'd made those three products in Sydney, they would be radically different and far more successful, I believe. Um, and so that definitely helped me, um, you know, the number of people in, in, in the US at the time when I joined Fitbit who had successfully rolled out contactless payments in multiple markets in parallel, I was very, very low. And I, you know, I was one of them. So that's, that's how I ended up working at Fitbit. Um, so definitely it's helped us um, bring what I think is some of the some of the best thinking, at least, um, and, and some and, and an awareness that there is a bigger world um, out there. And in some parts of the world, they've really solved for this stuff really, really elegantly and well. And consumers respond to that. So we, we've tried where we can within the limitations of compliance and regulation and infrastructure. We've, we've at least tried to aim for. Um, what we see as successful elsewhere in the world and credit cards being a case in point you know the credit card um, market in the us is incredibly commoditized it's a travel card cash card entry level card there um, there's more diversity and more interesting value propositions in credit card in singapore country of five million people than there are in the whole of the us a four trillion dollar credit card market um, and i think it's because there's just a lack of competition and um you know you've got these massive massive handful of companies dominating the market and they are not incentivized to change yeah. and no one's forcing them to there's no there's no sort of useful competition that's that's forcing the big guys to change and that's i think the role of fintech and and uh and the startup culture is to is to take on the big guys and do it better 
Are you going to be mortified if I tell you that I'm still writing checks? Not by choice, but I still. No, I, it's not your fault. It's never the customer's fault. It's the it's the it's the fault of the market. Right. It, it's it's the fact um, is you shouldn't need to. You should have. You should be presented with better options. Um, it, it's not that anyone should be forcing you to change. I, I, I've written more checks in in the first six months in the U.S. and the previous twenty years of my life. Indonesia has a more modern banking infrastructure than the U.S. It's just pitiful. I, I, I would, I would, I would believe that, especially you know, given the past few years, if you see what's been happening out east, um, and we talk quite a bit about that. Um, so, what do you think about the latest um, funding feeding frenzy? It, it almost feels like every day that I wake up in the morning and I see yet another headline and yet another record-breaking quarter, um, unicorn-making quarter. Doesn't matter what part of the world you're looking at. Um, I think I think the last figure I saw was a dollar out of every five in global funding has gone to fintech this past quarter. That came out from CB Insights report recently. What do you think about that? The party's just getting I, started, or I, I think we're absolutely just getting started. I think fintech isn't even one percent along where it where it needs to be and where it can be. Um, you know, there's there's very little other than our health. That is more important than finance, whether we like it or not. You know, it, it it it's what drives everything else, and we are all individually doing it really, really badly. And frankly, the big, successful, highly profitable, and this week we're going to hear more headlines: best quarter ever from all the normal suspects. Um, they're not running those businesses for our benefits. Quite clearly, they're running it for their own, and. Um, you know what does Jeff Bezos say? Show me the money, or you know, show me the margin, and that's that's my that's my opportunity. There is massive, massive opportunity to serve consumers better, to return value for money to consumers. Um, and if you look at, despite all the froth and the excitement on Crunchbase and TechCrunch and everything else, and on LinkedIn, we haven't even started yet. And you can argue whether X, Y, or Z company is actually you know everyone claims they're trying to save the world. And and you know deliver value for money and help people than this that and the other. It's not for me to judge whether a two day salary salary advance is really going to help people out of poverty or not. Um, but but much more importantly, much more broadly, over eighty percent, I think it's eighty three percent of all deposits are held by ten institutions in the U.S. And these institutions are delivering some of the worst value for money in the market. There are ten thousand banks in the U.S. Many of them small regional and community banks that offer really, really good value for money. They may not offer particularly good technic, you know, technology and innovation tools, but they actually give you better, better bang for your buck. And yet, consumers are putting their money in these vast financial institutions and getting worse return, frankly, worse service and probably worse products. Um, we haven't even solved for that yet. And it's not about technology. It's about psychology. We need to find ways to help consumers make better decisions. And we know it's not awareness. We know it's not education. It, it has to be something else. Um, we have to solve for our own cognitive biases. You know, we, we are not well, um, we are not particularly well designed to manage money. And that is exploited implicitly or explicitly by big financial institutions and small ones, frankly. Um, so we we've got a huge amount of work to do as an industry. Is is every fintech going to be solving, you know, elements of that? No, but hopefully, the more stars there are in the skies, it, it will be. We will solve those 
intractable issues um, through through experimentation and 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 you know trying and failing and and hopefully if 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 if, if there's enough attempts we, we're gonna we're gonna someone or, or a set of comp companies are gonna figure out how to how to help consumers help themselves in a way that is natural and intuitive and um you know really working with the consumer and their psychology rather than against it i, I think a lot of time a lot, there's a lot of rational thinking goes into fintech design and unfortunately consumers are anything but rational when it comes to money um so it's it's like you know if a very rational engineering response to something like people don't budget let's create a better budgeting tool budgeting tool i don't know that that's necessarily the right response because it's not lack of opportunity it's lack of motivation it's like it's like designing a better gym for people who don't like going to the gym not a lack of gym. That's not the problem. It's a lack of motivation. So how do we solve for the psychology of it is, I think, the much, much bigger question. And if, if that's going to take lots and lots of money from VCs to try lots and lots of different experiments, I think that's only a good thing. But I definitely believe that we are at the very early stages of um, what fintech has the potential to do. I think one of the things that uh, has been very clear over the last decade is that you know fintech, to your point, is only going to become a much larger portion of the scene. You know, if incumbent banks, fintechs, a lot of different players can still be profitable as part of this industry, and we're still not meeting the needs financially of so many people in our societies. Uh, it's just there. There's just a lot of more work to do, and we talk about that and and many different sort of flavors within the book Beyond Good that we put out a little bit earlier this year. So so switching, you know, gears just slightly, talking about the ecosystem and how it's evolved and sort of your thoughts about the the US and sort of where we're behind. And we, we would definitely agree with that. Um, a decade ago, things were very different. And the infrastructure that text can build upon has been very different over the last three or four years. You know, banking as a service, infrastructure as a service, the ability to, to launch a neobank or to launch a new payment platform has changed dramatically. If you knew what you knew now, back then, when you started Unify Money and you started building, is there anything that you would do differently other than maybe not do it here? Oh, no, I, I would definitely do it here because the, 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 the opportunity is that much greater here. Um, and if we sense. can solve it here, we can solve it anywhere. And you have you have the most extraordinary community of people and companies and culture um, that support founders um, that, at least in my experience, I haven't experienced anywhere else or anything like it. So this is the best possible place I can think of to try. Um, and if we if we succeed, even partially, then the, the prize is that much bigger. Um, um, uh, so many things I would have changed, mainly tactical things. Um, and, you know, there are certain lessons you only learn when you try. Um, and no amount of whiteboarding or consulting or theorizing can possibly teach you. Um, one of the one of the things that definitely is true is that, you know, when you outsource, you actually insource other people's problems. And it doesn't matter how big or small or sophisticated or how much funding those companies have. Um, you know, out, outsourcing is, is, is a double-edged sword in, in many respects. Um, and fake it till you make it is all well and good until you're actually relying on someone for that service. 
uh, yourself. Um, so that's been a disappointment. I get it. I understand why websites will say one thing and the reality is another. But um, the definitely some decisions and some approaches and some things we would have definitely done differently. Um, but I think that's natural. I don't think anyone goes into this perfectly and the the process is there for a reason you know you you get better through through trial and error and to an extent um and sometimes you find amazingly surprising things which we definitely have and and if we'd had a perfect design process we wouldn't have come and and stumbled across these serendipitous serendipitously um valuable things that that whether it's people technologies companies um that the the that, that we we are now working with and, and we have in in our in our platform um what what has been interesting is that that the 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 core design principles the consumer experience has been the same since even before day one before the napkin um how we've delivered that and how we iterate on it it uh, has evolved a lot um and that that's only been possible through partners and supporters and people that we're working with. So I don't, uh, you know, I, you get the good and the bad in the same process. So I don't think I would have changed the process. I, I wish I'd had hindsight, but, but, you know, that's, we always, always do. Um, but, you know, if, if you look at how we've ended up with our credit card platform, um, we wanted to do really quite different things with credit cards. $4 trillion industry, handful of companies dominated, um, no innovation, highly commoditized, um, nonsensical in so many ways. You know, who thought it was a good idea to, to, to market or buy credit cards based on their weight? You know, the whole metal card phenomenon is just indicative of how poorly served consumers are. Um, that, you know, would you buy a, a stock based on the weight of the products they sell? Really quick, I want to get your take on this. Um, so Amex came out with new pricing for their platinum yes. cards. Yeah. Almost $600 a year. Yeah. Yeah. You pay for the privilege of using their metal card. And I yep. just, I looked at that and I was like, why? Why would, I mean, is it, is it value signaling when you slap down plastic? Who slapped down I, plastic I, I, right now? I believe so. I mean, that's, that's the, I, I, my, my, my um, hypothesis is that the majority of people would chase Sapphire Reserve, for example. Um, it's not the best card for them from a purely um, financial return aspect. Um, they're getting it because, you know, people more senior than them have it and they, they, they want to mirror, they want to peacock, um, they want to slam that piece of metal down. On, and, and fintech has fallen, unfortunately, into the same, you know, there's a, there's a lot of fintech companies that are marketing their, their uh, metal card or faux metal card, and that should make us all pause. You know, who are we? Who's who are we serving by selling these products? By by trying to disassociate from the tool that they are. You know, the utility that they are that they should be providing. You should be looking to maximize your return, not to try and get a more attractive partner or, or date um, because you think that someone's going to be impressed by it. However, part of the challenge is. I've not yet a Chase Sapphire met, met a Chase Sapphire Reserve customer who accepts that they are the the minority of people. Um, they're all they they will all swear blind that um, you know they're a super frequent traveler and they use all those points and their miles. 
and and they 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 bought the marketing message of the last 20 30 years um so that that to me is the greater challenge how do we help people realize it at a at a core level credit cards are not for showing off your wealth your virulence your your attractiveness um it's it's simply a financial tool there should be a normalization and and i think covid started that process so it's interesting that you know people were looking at this 550 dollar a year product going i'm not getting anything out of this no one's i'm not even sitting in restaurants throwing my metal card around um is that going to disappear after covid I, i i don't know but it should do you know credit cards are like iras you know they should be as sexy as an ira um, which is to say, not sexy at all. They should be there as a financial instrument, nothing more, nothing less. In my in my view, I do. Look the, the, the more the more yeah. disassociated we get from seeing financial products as money, the more irrational we become. You know, there is this phenomenon that the form of money actually affects how you think of it. So, a ten dollar check, a ten dollar um, note, a, a ten dollar line on on the balance of your of your uh, bank account or a t- $10 sitting on a screen, that we all actually perceive these as different values, which is part of the problem with the cognition that we inherit from our ancestors around money. We are really not very well made to manage money. And therein lies the the, the loss of $20 trillion for an entire generation of their working life. Um, that's what I see as the opportunity to solve for, but that's just me. It, it's funny. It um, reminds me of when I first got my Apple card. Well, it's been a while now. Um, I was in Japan and uh, I was traveling with, with co- two colleagues of, of ours from the UK. And um, it was fun smacking down with that card. They were like, oh, wait, what is this? Um, you know, but then again, um, I think the utility of, of cards for me is I would love to be able to go out and not having to worry about carrying a physical wallet. I like everything on my little phone. That's amazing. That that's for me. That's a value add. Um, so we our, our credit card. We've designed it. So if you think about points and miles, which are which after cash are two of the worst financial assets ever invented. Yeah, you know, the, the depreciation <laughs> on those is just extraordinary. If you ever do get to spend them, um, and yet the, you know they're designed to encourage you to spend more. That is what. Thousands of people are employed by credit card companies. They are there to design cards that you think are more valuable than they are and encourage you to spend more. So we did the opposite. We designed a card that's a flat, uh, I'm not sure if we're publicly announcing this yet, but it's a flat cashback card. No revolving categories, no three, two, one, no gamification, which is just another word for lying. Um, and you redeem those rewards as either equity contribution to your robo fund, um, gold or Bitcoin. And you choose month to month. You can choose which of those assets. But the important thing is it's a car designed to help you save and invest, not one help to help uh, designed to help you and, and encourage you to spend more. Um, so it's inherently pro consumer and it's pro their long term wealth creation journey. Now, be careful now, because you might be the only one company out there that's not encouraging people to spend more money. <laughs> I think that's, we, we do, as a country, we do that really, really well. Um, so I, w- I want to go back a little bit. Um, end of last year, which, wow, it's been seven months now. Um, you gave 11 predictions. First of all, it was 11 that caught my eye. Normally people do 10, 5. It was 11. You yeah, did I think one 11. was a bonus. <laughs> 
So 11 predictions on FinTech. Um, now that we have, you know, gone more than half a year, what do you think we will see next for the rest of the year? And also curious what's next for Unify Money? Um, I, uh, so I, I think similar to the, you know, what the post-COVID economy is, is going to be fascinating. Um, are we going to go back to the bad old ways or are we actually going to learn from our experience and be more more considered in you know I, th I think covid if there's any good thing that's come out of covid it's it's an entire you know a generation of or if not two generations have learned that good things happen to bad people through no fault of your own so the importance of um managing your your wealth journey it doesn't really matter how much you're paid today because you may not be paid at all tomorrow um and you need to build resilience into your life so that you can thrive and survive in these unexpected challenges um and that that doesn't you don't build financial resilience in a day a week a month or a year you build it over multiple years and decades um and i'm i'm hoping that that particularly millennials and gen z are going to recognize to take the opportunity whilst they're young to to save and invest in a way that previous generations did not less than 30% of millennials are invested in the stock market even even less um below the age of 30 so the most the average age of saving for retirement in the US is 32 you've already lost 10 years of of compound interest the most important 10 years the first 10 um doesn't matter how much money you're putting away um you should be putting something away from as early as possible for as long as you can and most people are simply not doing that not because there's a lack of opportunity it's for reasons of psychology and inertia um and it's a two-way street obviously you know companies like ourselves can help, help make that easier we design to help people save and invest um and and to do so in a holistic and and passive way um so that it's easy as possible we we want to make saving and investing as easy as paying for an uber you know why has the industry solved for friction and payments because they get paid more when something's easier make something easier for consumers they do it more why is saving and investing just as hard as it was 30 years ago because big brand banks don't get paid if your money's sitting with vanguard um you do but they don't um so i hope but i have no idea whether this is going to be the case or not i hope that this is the beginning of a sort of normalization of saving and investing for all people um and we'll we'll see whether that happens or not um but i hope so um i think for and 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 for unify money we're we're launching our credit card uh next month uh working with rails bank uh, i2c um that's that's been a whole another story in its own right you know how how did we how did we help or how did we partner with a company that's taking on a 4 trillion dollar industry um and hopefully going to be the catalyst for an entire new uh market of innovative uh, credit card products from fintechs that that's really what rails bank is doing which i'm i'm really really excited to be a part of that and 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 to have been part of the sort of the early ideation around that um we build our product our, our product we already have the most comprehensive one of the most comprehensive investment platforms in the market We've got robo investing self-directed trading over 30 cryptocurrencies precious metals um and looking to add more over time We've got a full banking solution a high yield checking account so it's a hybrid less complexity um less things to worry and figure out and it's all done for you passively invest in your robo over time adding the credit card we need to solve for how we 
go to market in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Um, that's that's really it for us. We, we spent spent the last year and a half plus years um, building the platform, and now we need to solve in a in a very competitive market. You know, the top ten banks spend about fifteen billion dollars every year marketing. Um, then you have lots of very very well funded fintechs. Um, not afraid to lose 100, 200 million dollars a year, largely on acquisition cost. Um, you know, how do we present what I think is a rational story, one that is by design um, looking to help solve the long-term intractable problems with with managing wealth? Um, we need to we need to figure out how we how we play in the market to reach consumers who are open and amenable to that message. Sounds exciting. Um, look forward to seeing, you know, how the rollout of the new quarters and then what holds for the rest of the year. But thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. And for everyone, thank you for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you next week.